It's always All right. So let's. Companies. Thanks. Yeah, exactly. The tech companies are the ones that can't get it right. Exactly right. It's me. Yeah. It's always me. I have some sort no, of no. tech companies. No, it's uh, Zoom and Teams and all these things. They all they all play tricks on us every once in a while. So uh, keeps us keeps is. us on our toes. It's good for That's us. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, so Melee, first of all, thank you very much for uh, for joining us today here at uh, at CSI. We're really lucky to have you uh, to join. I think. I've been speaking to a bunch of the folks at Constellation and they're super excited to hear your story and your background and everything like that. So again, thank you very much for, uh, for taking the time to, uh, to join us today. Um, you know, I, I've sent out a couple of uh, uh, bits of information about, about May Lee. So I think a lot of people on the line know your story, but I'm going to just give you a very brief recap in terms of, um, terms of your background, just to give people who haven't read those emails a little bit of a background is that um, May Lee was a rising star within Google, working her way up the, working her way up the chain. Um, and uh, she traveling seemed like be a regular, um, you know, regular part of the, um, of the uh, requirements at Google. And as part of that, May Lee um, had to go over to uh, Nairobi, Kenya, in order to work with the locals to gather some research on, um, uh, to gather some research on, uh, on, on how people use their, use their phone. Um, when she went there, Google had selected the hotel on the basis that it was a, you know, a five-star hotel. It should have been relatively secure. And just when May Lee was about to uh, take an afternoon nap, the entire hotel was um, taken over by a terrorist. Um, and May Lee was trapped in a hotel room for approximately uh, 17 uh, terrifying hours. And in some time, in, at some points of this experience, the terrorists were either above the, you know, a floor above or very close by um, in terms of, um, you know, what was going on and, and people lost their lives. And, and you also had, um, you know, you also had the good guys um, working their way through the hotel. And all this was going on not so far outside of uh, May Lee's uh, hotel room, which again would be an absolutely terrifying experience. Thankfully, May Lee survived the experience. She came back home. And she started to suffer from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, which, as you're going to learn through this um, this chat today, is a real thing. Um, you know, nightmares, uh, not feeling safe in in places where you normally would have felt safe before, like hotels and restaurants and things like that. You know, aversions to loud noises. Now, thankfully, it sounded like um, Maylee had the support of a certain group within the FBI that specialized in helping people um, get through these type of uh, these type of experiences. And uh, May Lee ultimately um, was able to recover. And she actually went on to write a book about her, her experience called Terrorist Attack Girl, which is a fantastic book. And I would recommend anybody to take a read of it. And if that wasn't enough, she then went on to build her own app um, called, uh, called Trauma Brace, which is available in the United States and, U and, and the Ukraine in order, in order to help um, people who are suffering from uh, PTSD. And all this was done, I think, before the age of 30, which again is, is, absolutely, is absolutely remarkable. So again, we're really lucky to have uh, Maylee here to sort of talk about her, her story. Now, what did Scott do to prepare for, this, um, prepare for this discussion? So with all of our guests, I try and do a ton of research in advance. Um, so that involves, you know, checking out our webpage, that involves listening to podcasts and things like that, that Maylee's, uh, Maylee's been on to try and gather as much information as I possibly can. Now, one of the things I did to prepare for the interview, obviously, is I read her book. I actually read the book twice. And again, I would highly recommend that anybody go on Amazon 
um, and uh, and and pick up the uh, and pick up the book. Now, May Lee, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a finance person. I'm an accountant in my in my day job here at uh, at CSI, and I probably ran a little bit of analysis on the book that has probably never been done before. Now, it might mean I have too much time on my hands, which is probably true, um, but I'm also a finance person. So I said to myself, you know, because there's a couple of as you can imagine, someone who writes a book like this, in this experience, there's probably going to be a couple swear words that are going to be used throughout the course of the the course of the book. And I think, Melee, one of your podcasts, you actually put it perfectly, because I think you actually talked to your grandmother before the book was written. And you said, or, or before it was released, excuse me, and said, yeah. look, just so you know, and, and the grandmother said, you know, if there was ever a time, and I couldn't have put it better <laughs> myself. That was a great, that was a great quote. But in any event, what I thought I would do is I thought I would run some analysis on the book, again being a finance person, and the analysis <laughs> yes. that I the, yeah exactly, the analysis that I chose to do on the book is I decided to calculate f bombs per paragraph. Okay, that was the analysis that I was going to. So everyone on the line, again, you got that right. It is f bombs per paragraph. Okay, so I ran it all for the entire book, and for those that don't know me, probably not too surprised that I would do something silly like that. But as I went through it all there was one paragraph in the book that stood amongst them all number one on the list it was it was far and far and away the number one paragraph on this book uh within this within this book and the ratio f-bombs per paragraph for this one paragraph is seven to one oh, um, that is no. what the ratio is now everybody on the line is saying is probably thinking wow you know what are we talking about with a seven to one um, even ratio? even i think that yeah. <laughs> well, if it was me, the ratio would be higher. I'll tell you that because I'm going to tell the group the paragraph that we're talking about. So May Lee goes through this entire experience. And what happens when she goes back home is she actually receives an invoice from the hotel for her time. And, and an invoice that actually included breakfast on the day of the attack, which is, which is absolutely shocking, jaw-dropping. So the paragraph that we're talking about here with our seven to one ratio is that particular paragraph. And again, if it was me, the number would probably be significantly higher. So the fact that you actually got it down to seven to one, Maylee, is actually Oops. is actually pretty impressive. But yeah. what I want to ask you, because, again, I, we weren't sure if, you know, you also you had mentioned in your book that you had a granola bar and a, and yeah. a bottle of water during those 17 hours. I wasn't sure if the hotel you know, chose, dinged you on the mini bar for that. Or the other thing we weren't sure of either, you know, presumably the front desk was closed during this experience. Mm. We weren't sure if the hotel also dinged you for a late checkout fee, because the one thing you said in your book was that throughout all of this, the internet was actually working. So yeah. presumably from the hotel's perspective, I guess you could have utilized the online checkout in order to get checked out, even though the the, the front desk was actually closed. But the question I had for you was, you know, a couple of years after the fact, how do you feel about this invoice? If you were to go back to the book and write it and you came to that same paragraph, would the seven to one actually increase and would it actually be higher? Or do you feel differently now? And would the number actually come down a little bit? So maybe give us your perspective on the invoice, because there's a few jaw dropping moments in this book. Um, that to me is number one. I couldn't believe it. But there are a list of, of probably seven or eight other things that are shocking when you yeah. go through and read this book. But this is number one, but maybe, maybe give us your perspective on that particular, you know, that invoice yeah. a couple of years after the fact. 
Sure. Well, first and foremost, I want to say I'm going to use that intro of me as my new video resume. That's so oh, generous you of you to say all those kind words. Um, yeah, you know, I think to set the stage a little bit for anyone who might not know this, I, I don't <laughs> I don't swear this much in my daily life. Um, but my book really was adapted from journals that I was keeping after the fact. And so that is genuinely, I mean, stream of consciousness the day that I received that invoice. Um, so even I'm a little surprised that there are only seven F-bombs in there. I'm sure there are some other colorful words. Um, but I think at the time, it really belies um, the, it actually doesn't belie, it really accurately sort of underlines the the feeling that I was having. You talked about PTSD and how very real that is and how real it was for me. And one of the things that I struggled with so much with PTSD was rage. And rage was something that I had never dealt with before. I'm a really, I mean, I'm, I'm type A, but I'm pretty easygoing socially. Um, and, and rage is just not something that I had ever been familiar with, um, at least not feeling it myself. And I was on the edge of, of being enraged all the time. And so then in that place to get this invoice, and as you said, down to breakfast the morning of, um, though you're right, I should have taken a moment to appreciate that they didn't charge me for the water bottle that I took from the mini bar during the attack. Um, the granola bar I brought myself. And, oh, uh, I didn't know that. Okay. There yeah, you go. That was mine. So I certainly shouldn't have seen a charge for that. And, you know, I don't think they charged me for the, the laundry that I had sent down either, which I received uh, back like four months later. Um, oh. But I, you know, I, I think that at that time, it just shows you how sensitive everything felt, how acutely painful everything related to the experience felt. Um, today, I might, I might be able to laugh that off um, and just be like, you know, this is ridiculous. What is this? It also, it was so much more dramatic than that because I got charged by an entity that wasn't the name of the hotel. So I had this charge on my credit card and I thought my credit card had gotten compromised and I was already such a mess and I wasn't sleeping and I was trying to figure out where my card had gotten compromised and finally I'm tracing it back and I checked my email and I realized it's like the LLC that owns the hotel and that I had this bill and the whole thing was just you know are you are you kidding me um, but what what really what I remember what I remember saying as I was crying after reading this invoice was did they have the gall to send this to the people and their families who didn't make it and that's what I just couldn't get over. Right. But I think it's also easier for me to, to deal with today because the hotel is closed, not to be spiteful or vengeful, but the hotel's no longer in business. So, And I did pay the invoice for anyone who's curious. Well, like I said, there is, you know, you also talk about your experience with the airline coming back. You know, yeah. you're, you're, you, you know, the, the, the text that you were getting from news agencies while you yeah. were in the hotel. Yeah, like I said, there is a bunch of jaw dropping things that it just shows how insensitive the other side is too, right? You know, you talk about how sensitive to you, how insensitive the other, you know, you mentioned in the Delta experience, I think you actually connected with somebody who was United, actually helpful. Yeah. United, yeah, yeah. sorry, make sure I get my name right no, no. here. Is that, <laughs> um, is that who is actually helpful and, yeah. and, and was, and, and was, and was good, but man, it just shows, you know, a lack of, in you know, of sensitivity in, in people's time of need, yeah. right? But I think it also reminds us, right? It certainly reminds me on a daily basis now. You just never know what somebody else is going through. There were times when people did know what I was going through and they weren't super sensitive. You know, the news agencies asking if I could do an interview from the hotel. Wow. Like, okay, that's wow. not super sensitive. Um, but, but, you know, sometimes on the phone with United, right, I wasn't comfortable yet explaining what I had been through. I didn't even know how to put into words what had happened. Um, and so then it's those moments when someone just goes out of their way to be so kind that that it really 
can have the opposite effect, right? Instead of making yeah. you enraged, it can remind you how kind people can be. So yeah. that was important too. So I think if it, the way I think about the book is I almost think it broken down into, into three pieces and, and it, and it's the comparison of these three pieces that I think make, make it really, really fascinating. The way I, the way I would think about it is it's your life before this experience, yeah. the light, the 17 hours you were in the hotel and your life after the experience. And it's the contrasting of all of those three that I think are really interesting in the book. And I think, I think what it shows you is that life can turn on a dime. You know what I mean? Is that, yeah. you know, in, in one instance, um, your whole life can be, can be flipped upside down. So maybe to give people some perspective in order to start is, is what was your life like before those, those 17 hours started? And then we can work our way through after the fact, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and during, but maybe describe for the group, um, you know, what life was like before the attack. You know, and and, because I'll bet you you're going to describe it and it's going to be similar to a lot of the younger folks on the line. You know what I mean? Exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, And I I appreciate you saying it that way. I don't think anyone's ever said to me before that it's in three parts, but I think that's really uh, that's a really fair way to say it. Um, I was going to say the same thing. My life is probably like a lot of people uh, listening. I um, I'm your standard kind of type A overachieving square. I uh, I'm a big nerd and I think. Once you realize you can harness that, make a career out of it, it's it's really a valuable thing. I love to learn. Um, I love new challenges. I sort of um, I sort of have a reputation for always being the person who will do the project that nobody else wants to do. So I love to be that person. So I um, I grew up in a small town in Ohio. Um, my parents really really advocated for education, which was something um, they had to really work hard for and wanted to make sure their kids always had access to. The best education that they could and my dad always said you know open every door you can for yourself so you choose which one you walk through um and i tried to tried to stay true to that so um big nerd in high school loved school went to stanford um so it was my first time sort of moving away from ohio and then uh, uh when i graduated from stanford um you know graduated with distinction went on to be a consultant um, Google has an amazing hiring pipeline of former consultants because consultants are these like Swiss Army knives of of the you know nerd world. Consultants can sort of learn and do everything, um, which is awesome. And then uh, ended up in the marketing world at Google, which was really interesting because I had never done marketing before. But as a as a person who really loves data and numbers, um, I think that my role sort of ended up being much more centered around research. Um, so I did every big thorny research problem. Every time there was a problem that no one could come up with an answer to, um, they would sort of hand it to me and I'd start a research project. And nice. that was really why I traveled so much. Um, a lot of what I did on on these travel projects was um, talking to users, talking to end users, trying to understand the way that they think and, and compiling that into a you know slide deck, 10 slides that can explain uh, the answer to what tended to be a you know rather nuanced problem. So that's exactly what I was doing in Nairobi as well. So they pick up the phone. Google says, "Look, Bailey, we have a problem. We want we you know we want to gather feedback in in uh, in Nairobi, Kenya." And they say, "Bailey, we'd like you to go to Nairobi." What are you thinking when they tell you that? Like, what's your you, you know? Because you'd mentioned the book, you you know you traveled around and and you know went to all the different local hotspots and things like that. What was your kind of perspective before everything played out when that we you know when you get that when you get that call or email truly dead honest my reaction was awesome i've never been to africa 
that was it. I was that that was a project I had to I was stopping in Mumbai um, and and uh, Nairobi for work as as a uh, personal stops on the weekends in between. I stopped in the UAE. I was going to stop in South Africa and then I had to be in Canada the next week for Google. Um, so I I was like, great. I've never been to India. I've never been to Africa. Awesome. Can't wait. And was there any view on the safety risk of going to that country? Like, was there, did you have any perspective at that point to say, look, going into this particular country may have a heightened risk of, you know, of, of an attack or, or something along those lines? Was that part, thought even part of your, your thought process? I think perspective is strong. Thought process is strong. I wasn't even, you know, I, I, like you said, I traveled all over the world. I don't think I ever questioned anywhere that I was going. Um, but you sort of, you become almost, you think of yourself as almost immortal in this naive way because you don't think about it yeah. at all, really, is the yeah. thing, right? And so Google, Google says you're going here or there, or I say I need to go here or there for this research. And I mean, that was it, right? And Google, I, I don't know if they still do, I assume they do, but certainly had an office in Nairobi, Kenya at that time. So it's just not anywhere I would think twice about. Um, I did wonder about the protocol. It was the first trip where I was the only Google employee traveling. Um, and so I wondered, you know, am I supposed to have a driver? Is that a thing we do? I really had no idea. Um, and so I reached out to the security department and asked, and I actually had booked the Kempinski Hotel. Um, myself had selected it. And uh, they wrote back, they said, you know, low risk uh, travel, biggest threat to you is like being mugged. Uh, so, you know, be aware of your surroundings, but we do recommend that you switch your hotel reservation to a more secure hotel. Um, choose wow. one from this list. And so that was where I, where I booked the Ducid D2 ultimately. Wow. Yeah. So then we, then we roll forward to the, the day of, and, and maybe just describe sort of the moments leading up to um, the moments leading up to the attack and, and, and how it started, you know, I mean, like, yeah. what was what what was that day? What was that day like? Because it was, again, the way you describe it, it was, as with many things, it's if you would have done one little thing differently, yeah. the whole day may have played out differently. You know what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's just, a, there's an act of randomness in terms of how all of our days play out. Sure. And that act of randomness just kind of puts you in that spot at that particular time, right? Yeah, I mean, like changing the hotel reservation, right? That's not a, that's, there's no malicious intent in any of that, right? It was just this, the hotel that had a better security approval from, you know, their local security counterparts. Um, but that's one of those things that just changed the entire course of my life, right? When you look yeah, back at it. Crazy. Um, but the day was like that as well. So my, I, I did have a driver um, that, that Google found and, and assigned to me. Um, he was amazing. He was hilarious and like really gregarious and told me all these stories about living there. And he was really patient. Um, I think you can sort of picture my personality, right? As a researcher um, and a chatty extrovert, I was asking him everything I could think of, you know, how, yeah. what is your life like? How many kids do you have? What's your family like? What's your everyday job like? You know, with whom do you work from which different corporations? What do you talk about? Um, and he was really patient with all of that and, and was giving me answers. And he had told me the day before, you know, before you leave, you've got to see the elephants and the giraffes. So everyone, anyone who's been to Nairobi will have heard this. Um, so he picked me up early and we went around to see the elephants and the giraffes. And as we were driving, he took me past the slums. Um, he took me past the mansions of the politicians. He talked about the corruption in the country. And then he started on this long explanation of the history of terrorism in the area. And I remember literally thinking, um, 
I, like control your face. I had uh, control your face. I had no idea that this goes on. Um, and I, I felt so naive sitting there as he was talking about the daily, you know, sort of impending risk of terrorism in, in his city, in his country. Um, and I was shocked. I remember thinking like, good thing I leave tomorrow. Wow. I really didn't yeah. know where I was. Um, and then we stopped for lunch. Lunch was a bizarre experience. When I look back, our order got lost twice. So he eventually got up and talked to the owners and lunch took like two and a half hours. We finally get on the road to the interviews that I'm supposed to go conduct, um, listen in on, I should say. And uh, and by that point, lunch had run so long and traffic was so bad that we were going to be 90 minutes late to two hour a two hour interview session. And I thought it's more rude at this point to interrupt three quarters of the way through than to just miss it and, you know, watch watch the feed later. Um, so I asked him to just take me back to the hotel. It was about 3 p.m. He dropped me off. I came in through the metal detectors, as I did every day, uh, talked wow. to the front desk staff, you know, waved to them and went up the stairs. I took the stairs because um, the stairs were encased in glass, these big, beautiful windows all around the spiral staircase. Um, and I was only on the third floor and it was just beautiful to walk up the stairs. So I walked up the stairs, went into my bedroom, packed my bags to be ready to leave the next day and laid down for a nap. And that was, I mean, to that point, nothing had made me even uncomfortable. I had texted my family and said, you know, it's so much more safe here than I would have realized. The infrastructure is amazing. The the people are amazing. Um, I feel super comfortable here. You you needn't have worried. And uh, And that was the last normal moment in my life for a very long time. So how did it turn? Like, what was what was that experience when you first heard the, you know, the explosion? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the ne the very next thing that happened was very, um, it was very definitive, right? That that is literally the moment that my entire life changed. And there was no, um, there was no confusion. I wasn't, you know, am I in danger? It was immediate. So the, uh, sorry, the, the suicide bomber um, detonated their vest in the courtyard, which my room was looked down on. So from the third floor, the courtyard was like right outside my room. You could see the secret garden restaurant where he detonated. Um, and so the, the impact from that explosion was incredible. It was extraordinary. It was like nothing I've ever, ever experienced, nothing I've ever experienced since. Um, it was so close and I just instinctively, I mean, I knew that something so bad had happened so close to me that I was definitely in mortal danger. And I actually didn't realize that I was screaming. I was just screaming, no, 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 before a, a thought had even processed. Um, but I knew, you know, which way the sound had come from. And so I ran toward my window, um, which you might think now is a, a terrible decision to make yourself, you know, so visible from the courtyard. Um, but I wrenched open my curtains and I looked down and I, I knew, I mean, I had just been talking to my driver literally uh, about terrorism in the area. I knew immediately what was happening, um, but I was sort of glued to the scene. I was looking down at the, the blood and the gore and the smoke and, uh, and I was, I was just sort of glued looking down just in shock, I guess. Um, and then I saw the gunmen walking in with AK 47s and firing their guns. And I, that was the snap out of it moment where I shut my curtains and then realized I have no idea what the hell to do now. I just stood there. What was, you know, I remember when I was reading your book, I was thinking to myself, um, what do you do? 
You know, like like just exactly. trying to put anybody in that position. What the other thing that I found really, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised at this, but I was, is 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 the people you had spoken from Google. Like obviously there are support services that are being provided, you know, and and the advice that they had given you was actually quite good advice, right? Like it like I would have never have thought some of the things that they had suggested for you to do, right? Yep, yep. I finally that was sort of my snap to it moment. So when I had gone to China with Google, um, we had, uh, that was a big group of us and we'd all been given this briefing and they literally on the briefing said, all of you pull out your work phones right now. No, literally pull them out and save this phone number to your speed dial. Okay. So everyone pulls out their phones. That's the international emergency Google phone number. And so it was like, it was just this seed that my brain sort of caught out of the wind, you know, as I was standing there and, and I was like, oh, there is a number that I can call. And I don't know what I thought they could or couldn't do in the moment, um, but I did call and, and I ended up speaking to this woman. It's actually very funny because someone answers the phone, like at all call centers, someone answers the phone and then directs your call. But I remember someone picking up and it was a woman's voice and she asked me what's happening and I was like, terrorist attack. And uh, she was like, okay, hold please. So I remember being shocked, like, I don't have time to hold, um, but got transferred to Melissa and Melissa was like that. She not only had very concrete recommendations for what I could do, which was, I think, life-saving in its own way, because I, it's, it, I could perform action again, right? I don't, otherwise I would still be standing there. I don't know. I felt like I was going to die of a heart attack standing there, of, of fear, of panic. Um, so to give me things that I could start doing to try to ensure my own survival, that was extremely helpful. Um, so she told me to turn my lights off, to barricade my door, find a hiding place to the best of my ability to make it look from the outside like no one was in that room so that it wasn't a target. Um, and then the the flip side of what Melissa did that was so important is that she understood the mental load in those moments and that what she really, really, really needed to get me to do was flip off fight or flight mode just a little bit, just to the point where I could speak in coherent sentences, right? Um, I mean, I was shaking so badly, I could barely hold the phone. I was like struggling to to just verbalize any words at all. Um, and so she'd ask me to look around my room and, and describe what I was seeing. Can you find anything that's green? Can you describe it to me? These are very basic cognitive behavioral grounding exercises that I didn't know at the time. Um, but that was the only reason that I could even verbalize. Then she could ask me, can you find a good hiding place? How do you know that no one can see you? You know, And it could be a bit more of a conversation that way. How would you describe fight or flight mode? You know, I think, <laughs> you know, we actually, we, we spoke to someone a few months ago, which they try and describe it. Yeah. But you're going to have a totally different perspective. Like, how would you describe fight or flight mode when your body goes into that, you know, that 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 kind of panic mode? Yeah. I, so I love one of my therapists said to me, my therapist said to me at one point um, that, you know, we're overhauling the definition these days. It's fight, flight or freeze mode because I, that was so accurate. Right. I was literally like frozen. I mean, not literally, but I could not move from where I was standing. I was frozen to the spot, um, which is sometimes a valuable reaction in a life or death situation. You know, if it's a bear, maybe the right thing is to play dead. Um, so you, you can run, you can fight or you can sort of freeze where you are. And uh, I would describe it like if you take the most stressful day you've ever experienced and you crank that up beyond where you even think it'll go it's sort of like that your rational thinking wow. is gone you're not hungry you're not thirsty um you're not tired you literally i mean and, and we know this from the research right your body shuts off every single competency that isn't necessary for pure survival and what was extraordinary that i have trouble explaining to people is how much the voice in my head was telling me to run i mean 
it was like everything else didn't exist. And there's just this screaming voice in my head that's going, you're going to die. Run, run, run. You need to run. Um, and it was like difficult bodily to not give in to that urge. I, I thought so many times about wow. sprinting out my patio door, jumping over the railing and like just trying to literally make a run for it. And it was the people that I talked to throughout the experience that were would remind me over and over and over um, and apologize, you know, for repeating themselves. But, you know, I'm sorry to say this again, but you have to stay where you are. And that was critical, too. It, it was such an informed thing to do. I wouldn't have thought to do that for someone in that situation. But I'm telling you, otherwise, I'd have run. And I, I would have died. What was the what was the hardest part of those 17 hours in that in that hotel? Is there, is there something that sticks out as the most, the, you know, the, the hardest part of that, that 17 hours? Yeah, absolutely. It was saying it was saying goodbye to my family easily nothing else could touch that um in the first couple of minutes i realized i I came to the conclusion that i didn't have very long to live um and i i knew that i had to tell my family um and i knew that i would never see them again and and it's so hard you if you think that your hands are shaking so badly you can hear the gunshots you can hear the explosions your brain is saying run you're gonna die run and you think you literally have 20 seconds to fire off a message to the people you love more than anything in the world. Um, you know, what do you say? And I just, I, I was so frustrated because nothing could possibly convey what I was feeling toward them, you know? Um, but I just, I sent them each a text, my, my parents and my now husband, who was my fiance then. And I said, I love you. I'm in a terrorist attack. Yeah. Because I figured that I figured that the one thing left that I could do was leave them with a message that they could sort of treasure. I know that's kind of macabre, but I didn't want to say I'm scared or I'm going to die or, you know, this is my worst nightmare, which were all certainly things that I was thinking. Um, I thought I'm going to die. That's definitive. So what's a thing that they can look at? that will help them once I'm gone. Right. And I thought that's, that's the best thing I can come up with. So let's go to the other side, the best part of the 17 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Easily. Right. Um, (laughs) I was rescued. That's how I'm here. Um, and it's, (laughs) that's a thing that's hard. It's hard. And even feeling these emotions right now, as I talk about it, that is such a high, high and such a low, low, those two moments, right? Like, probably the most distinctly high high of my life and distinctly low low of my life and i felt them within 24 hours of of each other um but yes at hour 17 there was a a light knock on my door really you know casual um sort of professional could hear a voice on the other side sort of quiet which i remember thinking was bizarre everything had been so loud for so long the fire alarm went off for over 12 of the 17 hours you know the bombs went off the entire time the gunshots it had just been so loud it was just this cacophony the entire time and so for someone to knock sort of politely on my door and then this you know voice in like a regular volume to be like Maylee um are you in there (coughs) Maylee hi hi we're here to get you out um you know I really there was a moment of I'm I'm definitely hallucinating this like that's not that's not happening. Right. Um, but it was incredible to, to throw my door open and, and have these, um, strangers standing in the midst of what looked like a post-apocalyptic movie set 
um, like literally bodily assist me um, down the stairs and, and out of the danger was, it's like nothing I could ever describe. Best moment of my life. So when you talk about you, you 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 mentioned this in the book. Yeah. When you sit back and think about it, that whole day, best day of your life or worst day of your life? How how do you how do you think about it now? Like the uh, you, yeah. you, you yes. know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. That's right. Um, yes. I think it's so hard, right? Because if I could, people ask me this um, today. If I could take back the experience, um, if I could erase that day from the world from my life would i yes of course i would because so many people were murdered right just completely innocent people were murdered in this horrifying tragic experience and if i could give their lives back i would you know obviously without without blinking without thinking about it um given that i can't do that i've tried really hard to make meaning positive meaning out of that day and that's been maybe the most purpose and fulfillment that I've ever felt in my life. And and I think to the point that you said, on that day, I saw the two extremes of humanity. I stood between the most, the most sort of classic form of evil I've ever seen. People just walking through unarmed, innocent civilians and taking their lives to prove a point. Um, and then complete strangers who are willing to risk their lives to save us, right? And and to juxtapose the two extremes of humanity that um, that clearly within 24 hours was, you know, the best I've ever seen from humanity and the worst I've ever seen from humanity. So it, it really is both. And I, I wish I could give those people their lives back. But since I can't, I'm going to try to make the experience a, a I'm going to make the experience give birth to something positive. That's that's the best that I can do. Well, and you've done that, you know, for <laughs> sure you've done that. Um, I appreciate that. The other the other piece to this that I want you to just tell in your own words because again, it is it is another you talk about incredible actions by individuals and um, Christian Craighead. Yeah. You know, AKA Superman, AKA, you know, Obi-Wan Nairobi. Obi-Wan Nairobi. Yeah. That's what they call Describe it. in your own words how the situation got resolved and Christian's role in all of that. Because again, there <laughs> you, you mentioned jaw dropping, um, jaw dropping things in your book, and 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 you can't you can't get through it without talking about Christian. You know what you I mean? You can't. And I it was so one of those moments. If I had tried to imagine this as a story and write as write it as a book, it wouldn't sound as fantastic as it truly unfolded in real life. That's it's just one of those things that's you know reality really is stranger than fiction. Um, I think the thing I just want to point out briefly first is that I took my safety for granted, and I touched on this a little bit at the beginning, but I did. You know, every day in the U.S. I never worried about going into a hotel or, you know, I try to be aware of my surroundings, certainly, but um, I took my safety for granted and I certainly took for granted the fact that if something catastrophic happened, there would be people to come help, to come save your life, right? And I, so many times, I wish I had the recording so many times during the first 30 minutes on that call with Melissa over and over and over, I just kept saying, who's going to help us? Like, where are the people to come stand between us and evil, right? I don't, I, I don't have a weapon. I don't have the training. But aren't there people who, who do this? Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a, 
it, it really shows how much I took that for granted. Um, and, and ultimately the answer is not always yes. It depends on where you are in the world and, and what's happening and who's available and, and the training. And it depends on a, a, a myriad of factors, but <laughs> I, I was in Nairobi, Kenya, and somehow there is an SAS operator named Christian Craighead, who, by the way, happens to be like one of the most decorated um, now veterans of, of all time in the SAS. And I'm sure I'm butchering that, but the point is he is, if there's going to be one guy to come save you, it's this guy. Um, and, and he specialized in training that was for rescuing hostages and close quarter battles and things like that. So um, he, you know, for whatever reason decided, and I think he would tell you it's not even a decision. He, he heard what was going on and sort of jumped to action, which is incredible. And so ultimately Christian Craig had led every initiative against the terrorists for um, actually close to 20 hours. The event was not over when I was extracted um, and is responsible. It's why they call him Obi-Wan Nairobi because he was our only hope. He is responsible for saving over 700 lives in that business complex that day. And we talk about randomness of life. Yeah. him be like this wasn't somebody who was part of a it, it was just happened it was just kind of the just randomness of life the same way your lunch was delayed you know two hours or three hours yeah. him at that moment at that time was just was was just an element of randomness it correct? really was yeah absolutely that's exactly the right way to say it um and i i stand by um, you know, obviously I can't, can't prove this and certainly wouldn't want to, but I stand by that I, I would be dead if he hadn't been there. There just, there was no, there was nothing else, you know, that it's, they had taken over the complex and they were systematically executing the people inside. It's crazy. Yeah. So the good news is you return home. You're yes. saved. You return home. And I'm guessing when you're on that plane coming back, you're thinking, I'm good. You know what I mean? Like I'm like, I'm, is, I'm yeah. thank, thank goodness I'm alive. Yes. Now it's now I, you know, I'm going to have a much more perspective on life in terms of yes. how it can turn on a dime and yes. I'm good. I'm, I'm, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I can't go back to work tomorrow, but you know what? Maybe I'll go back to work in like a week or something like that. Exactly. So, so, so maybe then describe what, what your life was like when you, when you, when you came back from uh, yeah. when you came back to the US. I think the plane ride is another sort of perfect delineation in the story because I remember that feeling and it was so bizarre because um, <laughs> Google in their infinite politeness um, booked me business class back home. I remember some joke being sent to me about, you know, if ever there were a day for you to fly business class oh. today, um, which was, I mean, I really appreciated it. I, I hadn't slept in, in, you know, well over 30 hours at that point. Um, and obviously was, you know, more than just physically exhausted. Um, but I, I remember being on the plane and just waiting and waiting and waiting for the plane to take off and the plane took off. And our first stop was somewhere in the US. Um, so I knew the next, oh no, sorry, Germany. We stopped in Germany. So I knew the next place we were gonna touch down was Germany. Um, I felt, you know, very, very safe in this very um, specific way. You know, you're in business class on a Lufthansa flight to Germany. Um, I've done this a million times. I feel great. I feel safe. I remember the flight attendant offering me a glass of champagne and I swear I almost took it. It really felt like a moment that you should be toasting, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I, but I was so exhausted. I, I think I was asleep like 30 seconds after she said that. And I said, no, thank you. Um, and I thought that home free is really the feeling. And I also, I think 
was almost, um, I was almost struggling with the fact that I didn't have any epiphany. You know, you read these stories and it was in that moment where I almost died that I realized like everything in my life had been the wrong decision and I needed to change careers. And I, I didn't have any of that. I was like, I love my job. I love my life. I love my fiance. I love my family. I can't wait to get back to all of it. All I want to do is go back, like just forget this horrible day ever happened and go back to my life. And I get to, right. And I was aware of that. I felt extremely grateful. Um, and so I got home and, and I was, I went to my, I went to Ohio. I went to my parents' house and, uh, I was, I think, I think you'd say I was in shock. I was emailing work, you know, Hey, like you said, Hey, I'll be out for a couple of days. Make sure this invoice gets paid, make sure this oh research God. gets approved. Um, I'll, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. And, uh, and I was making jokes, you know, I, I had <laughs> been talking too loudly about the attack when I was in the Frankfurt airport on my layover and had, you know, drawn a bunch of stares and awkwardness. And I was making jokes about that. And, you know, if there's anywhere that this is not polite conversation, it's probably shouting about it in the business class lounge in Frankfurt. <laughs> um, and I felt, I felt nothing probably is the best way. I felt really numb in those first couple of days. I felt nothing but gratitude. This was what I wanted and I'm back. Um, I think everything else was compartmentalized for a couple of days and I was tired, <laughs> tired in a way that I've never been tired. I mean, I slept for probably 20 hours when I got back Wow! and then, um, I remember it so specifically on the third night that I was in Ohio, I was trying to go to sleep and I couldn't go to sleep. I was, my hands started shaking and my heart was pounding and I started sobbing. I'm lying in my bed and I'm sobbing my, you know, my childhood room and I'm sobbing and my fiance is like, what is happening? And I was like, it's like, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna find me. They know I'm here. They know I'm here. And I just, I was so convinced. And I'm telling him, you know, the explosion, it's going to go off any second, the explosion, the explosion. And he's like, ah, uh, you know, no one knows how to react. Right. And most of all me, I don't know how to react. I don't know what's happening. Um, I have no rational thought back in that fight, flight or freeze mode. And I was so convinced. I kept saying, they're going to find me. They're going to find me. They're going to find me. Um, and what I know now is that was a trigger, right? I was lying in my bed when the explosion happened in Nairobi. And my body and my neural pathways had started to associate that with danger inherently. So you're calm. You get into bed. You think everything's fine. And you have a panic attack. Um, I'd never had a panic attack before. Didn't know what that was like. Didn't know what it felt like. Didn't know what was happening. So I avoided bed um, because when I was in there, I couldn't sleep. If I did sleep, I had these incredibly vivid nightmares. I'd wake up full body sweat, screaming. Um, oh you know, I couldn't, I was having trouble. Like I've always been a big, big reader. That's sort of my escapism. I couldn't read more than a page without a super vivid flashback. Um, I couldn't think about work. And then you know, that's all compounded by the fact that you're only sleeping about two hours a night, right? So you already have these symptoms and then they're all exacerbated by lack of sleep. So um, total mess. Everything had become a total mess. And then I was furious. That's where the rage came from was I got back to my life and I couldn't live it. And I just didn't know what to do. And when did you realize that, you know, there was something wrong? Like, like it yeah. wasn't just like, you know, a couple days of, of, you know, trying to get over the experience, but literally like something was, something was wrong and you needed help, you know? Yeah. I think, um, as a type A overachiever perfectionist, uh, I would say that one of my weaknesses is asking for help. I'm not very good at asking for help. Um, so I probably wouldn't have, I don't know what I would have done. Um, but I, in, instead, really, I was making it worse for myself because there was just this incessant voice in my head saying, really, really, 
you whiner, you're going to be a mess. You didn't fight the terrorists. You lived like, what yeah. is wrong with you? How dare you, um, you know, struggle in the aftermath of this? What more could you have wanted? Um, and that was really sort of worsening the symptoms. And I didn't know what to do. And as you said, the FBI <laughs> in, the, in the U.S., the FBI has a department um, for American survivors of international terrorist attacks, which is insanely specific. And yeah. I was assigned a, a victim specialist from that group without my participation, without my awareness. Um, it happened automatically in the background. And she was assigned to anything that I needed. Come sit with me while I cry. Come check in on me every day. Um, and she was incredible. And she not only recognized the symptoms and the experience, but she was the first one to say, um, this is is uh, an exact match for PTSD symptoms, I think you're gonna need a trauma therapist. And I remember arguing with her. I was like, I'm not in the military. I don't have PTSD, um, but I certainly did. So how would you describe for the group what PTSD is? <laughs> uh, sort of like hell. Um, PTSD in the simplest sense is, is I was thinking about this earlier today. Um, it is new neural pathways that shouldn't exist. That's what PTSD is, right? So what happens is uh, your fight, flight, or freeze mode becomes too easily uh, flipped into the on switch, and it doesn't have any ability to modulate either. It goes all the way to extreme, right? So because we were in a really scary situation where we almost died and we don't know why that happened, um, our body thinks that danger is around every single corner, right? So a loud noise um, will turn you all the way into fight, flight, or freeze mode. Um, an argument with a loved one will put you all the way into fight, flight, or free freeze mode, right? You feel like you're in imminent mortal danger all of the time. So you're incredibly on edge. Um, that's why you can't sleep, right? You can imagine you don't have a desire to sleep. You don't have a desire to eat. Um, you can't focus. Um, and, and you are very close to rage all the time. That's fight of fight, flight, or freeze, right? So, um, yeah, it's sort of like being electrocuted all of the time is what it feels like. And you referenced, you know, when you got into that first discussion with the therapist about what you're, what you're suffering from, you know, your view was, and I bet you there's a lot of people on the line would have the same view. I certainly did before. I did my own research um, and, and read some of the things that, that you had recommended that I read yeah. is that this is something that the, the soldiers deal with. This is something the military deals with. Exactly. And, and this is, you know, this, this is kind of for them, you know I mean? This yeah. doesn't impact everybody in, in, in the safe, in the safety of North America, but yeah. maybe just give some perspective on how PTSD, like if anything, the military is, is a small, very small subset of who yeah. it actually impacts. Exactly. Right. It is, it, is, it is much greater than than just thinking that this is a something that soldiers, which they certainly do. There's exactly. no doubt about that. Soldiers yep. are going through extreme situations that, again, are, are doing all things. But it is certainly not limited to soldiers. Yeah, it basically. Right. It starts with shell shock and shell shock is so visible, um, you know, when when our loved ones were getting home from these world wars that we knew something was happening and that kicks off the research. And so what's so beautiful about PTSD is there has been an incredible amount of research in the past several decades, really, 
um, that has really changed the way it can be conceptualized, the way it can be treated. Um, we have extremely effective treatments to to help uh, redefine those neural pathways that that can basically alleviate the vast majority of of fallout from PTSD. Um, but we so we did ourselves a real service you know no one says oh that's not real anymore right ptsd okay i've heard of that that certainly exists i don't know that i can understand it but okay something something that that certainly is real um but then we've done ourselves a disservice a bit because we say in the military or for the armed services or for our veterans right that's that's the only world in which we think that that exists and the reason that makes me really sad now is not a personal one it's actually because as i did the research later i realized that the trauma type most likely to lead to ptsd is actually sexual assault and rape and so when you think about people who are suffering silently with these invisible wounds um you should also very much think about about that community but you know right now it's so relevant not only um survivors of war whether they are part of the armed forces or not um but also natural disaster survivors right i've been thinking yeah. about them so much every day in the news um it is anything where you thought you were gonna die or you thought a loved one was gonna die or a loved one did in fact die um that's traumatic right that that puts a ton of stress on our our minds and our bodies um, and that can lead to PTSD. And, and it's so, it is not a, um, it is not a very choosy disorder. I would say, you know, PTSD can affect anyone anywhere. And you may have been something through something that you would say is not objectively as bad as what the military goes through. You may have been something that you would say is much worse than what anyone has been through. Um, PTSD may or may not affect you. It doesn't have to do with the size, shape, look of the trauma. It has to do with your brain and the way you processed it. And that can happen to anybody. And how would you know if a loved one was experiencing the impact of PTSD? What would be the signs to look for? Yeah, um, they're probably yelling at you. Yeah. I know that's so <laughs> unpleasant, right? Um, I was yelling at my family all of the time. I could not control my rage. Um, I really was suffering with guilt. I was super ashamed. I was having a lot of trouble. This one's sort of easier to spot. I was having a lot of trouble um, leaving places that felt safe. So I was having trouble going to the gym, going to the grocery store, um, you know, just running errands around town because I felt like everything was dangerous. So they might seem um, on edge. We call it hypervigilant. So, uh, you know, when I'm at a restaurant, I have to face the door. I don't want to go to the grocery store. These are all things that um, we are overestimating the danger where in fact we're safe. So that's a, a really sort of visible one that you can look for in loved ones. Um, insomnia, nightmares, panic attacks, those are all um, very, very visible. And I think the hard thing is you may well not know what the trauma was, right? That happens so often, especially with sexual assault. You, did, you never heard the story. You didn't know that this event happened. You're only seeing the fallout. So try to ask yourself if you're seeing a problem or a symptom. That's the thing about PTSD, right? Everything that I was experiencing was a symptom of the trauma. So you didn't need to look at me and say, are you depressed? Yes, I'm depressed. Yes, I'm, I'm struggling with whether or not I wanna continue living, but that's a symptom of this trauma. So we need to go all the way back to the neural pathways and work on those. Wow. So then, you were fortunate in that the FBI had reached out to you and, and kind of had the support network there to to help you. And I'm just wondering, what are some of the treatments for PTSD? If you have a family member or something like that who's who's suffering, what are some of the treatments? How do you 
how do you get through it? How do you, because again, you're talking about neural pathways. We're not talking about a broken arm, a broken exactly. leg. You put a cast on it, you know, you wait X number of weeks or X number of months and, and the body is going to heal it. Um, PTSD is, 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 is damage to the brain. And, and, and it's, you know, in order to fix that, it's probably completely different than how you would fix a physical injury. You know what yeah. I mean? So maybe just yeah. give some perspective on, you know, the process you had went through and, and, and some of the treatments in terms of dealing with PTSD. Yeah, I would say it is totally different and it isn't right. Um, when we break a bone, what's great in a crazy way about breaking a bone is it's super visible and everyone understands what's happening to you, right? I can see where you were impacted and that's called trauma too, right? Physical trauma. Um, yep. I can see where you were impacted. I can see what happened. I can understand. It's similar to things I've experienced in my life. And I know what kind of treatment you're probably going through, right? Physical therapy. Um, once, once you get the cast off maybe. And physical therapy sucks, but we all do it because we want to regain full use of, you know, that limb or whatever. Um, and so it's really hard and it hurts, but we know what we're working toward and we're regaining that mobility. So in a lot of ways, it actually is a perfect analogy to PTSD. Um, PTSD is a, a mental trauma, but it also is a is a valid coping mechanism, right? That's our bodies and our brains saying, how do I stay out of life-threatening danger in the future? Um, it's just over amplified, right? It's, it's up too high. So it's, it's about dialing that back and readjusting to safety. Um, and there are, this is the, like the thing that makes me so happy and so hopeful about PTSD for everyone is that there are so many treatment types. So a whole bunch of different talk therapy based treatment types from what I did, which is exposure based. So reliving what happened to you and working through the beliefs that you built up during those moments. Um, trying to readjust them consciously. There is EMDR, which is an incredible eye movement based treatment that you can do with certified therapists, um, which doesn't require as much reliving of the event if that doesn't feel accessible to you. Um, there's cognitive processing therapy, which is more like doing homework assignments to try to process what happened to you. It's one of my favorites. There's somatic experiencing, which is about truly working on that um, over amplified nervous system response and turning that down again without having to do as much reliving of the event. Um, and then there are so many things that exist now, even outside of that, right? They're using transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS, uh, and working on PTSD. They're using MDMA, right? Um, the street drug called ecstasy, but in really safe, you know, controlled uh, ways because MDMA naturally will turn down your fight, flight, or freeze response so that you can process what happened to you in a safe environment. Um, they're using ketamine, they're using psilocybin, um, ayahuasca retreats, right? Like my, my point in listing so many and sort of beating a dead horse, their stellate ganglion blocks, um, is that there is an answer. There is an yeah. answer for every person. I really, really, really believe that. And it might be hard and it might be really hard to find it. And that is so much to ask of someone who's already going through PTSD. And I know that. Um, but I always say the only thing worse than trying to live with PTSD, the, the only thing worse than PTSD treatment is trying to live with PTSD. So like, I promise it's, it's worth the work the same way that physical therapy is. So where do you go for help? Like, like, you know, obviously, you know, if, if, if you suffer an injury, you go to ER. You know, I mean, you yeah. go to the hospital, right? Yeah, you know, but exactly. if you're suffering from PTSD, where do you go for help? So if you want to do talk therapy, the first thing that you need to do is you need to find therapists who are properly certified. There's a lot of nonsense out there because there isn't just a hospital where you can go where everyone has been properly board certified. Um, you need to like sift through the sift through the noise, ask your family for help with this. Um, you know, the FBI literally found my trauma therapist, but she was properly certified uh, in prolonged exposure and CBT, which was really important. Um, 
But if you don't want to do that, get online and start looking at these other options. There are studies at universities that you can join. That's incredibly reputable, right? If you join John Hopkins psilocybin PTSD treatment uh, work, that's incredibly reputable. Um, But now in the U.S., I I don't know this situation in Canada, but now there are um, ketamine providers and locations where you can go again uh, would heavily research any of those options. But um, those are available sort of in the mainstream now. So that's really important too. And then of course, um, online options. It's it's almost funny that I haven't mentioned that yet because as you said, I did make an app, um, but there are, there are some self-help options as well. Um, you know, specifically the one that I work on is called Trauma Brace, which is an app um, that lets you do some of these evidence-based protocols that come from talk therapy, exposure-based talk therapy and cognitive processing therapy specifically um, in your own home on your own time so that you get know, again, that you're getting something that's truly based in evidence. That's always, always the most important question. How does your app work, Bailey? Like, like how does someone downloads the app on their phone? How does it help them recover from PTSD? Yeah. And I, you know, this is not a sales pitch. I want to be clear again, different solutions for everybody. I, I wanted to make this app because um, a lot of these solutions can be expensive and a lot of them don't accept insurance, especially in the U.S. Um, and so we wanted to make an app that uh, was just more accessible and, and didn't have a wait list. That's the other really tough thing about trying to get into see talk therapists is sometimes, you know, six months, 12 months, you have to wait. So that can be a tall order for someone who is sort of at rock bottom the way that I was. So we made an app. Um, it's, you can just download it in the app store. You go through a set of onboarding questions that helps you understand the acuity of, of the PTSD symptoms you're experiencing. Are you above or below the threshold as clinicians think about it for like diagnosable PTSD? Um, and then it begins to allow you to customize the experience to walk yourself through the exact same steps that I would have gone through in therapy um, which are mostly based around re-exposing yourself to the memory. So, um, walking yourself back through what happened and then also eliminating erroneous beliefs that developed alongside the memory. So a lot of people will say things like, um, it's my fault, you know, whatever the trauma was, it's, it's my fault. I feel ashamed. I don't want to talk about it. Um, and so I really try to, we, we, we worked really hard to build, um, cognitive processing therapy and for those beliefs so that you can realize, you know, it's, it's certainly not your fault. There's no reason to feel shame. And that helps sort of get you unstuck as they genuinely call it in the clinical world um, from these uh, difficult thoughts that surround the memory. So it's mainly focused on those two elements. Wow. The other piece, the other thing I want to talk to you about is the, is the, obviously the book itself, um, Uh, Terrorist Attack Girl, maybe just provide some perspective on why you chose to write the book. (laughs) Yeah, I really, um, that's always a a funny question to me because I really didn't choose to write the book. The book wrote itself in a lot of ways. Um, I've always, I'm a big reader, as I said, I I write um, to process. I sort of always have. I think the harder the moment is in my life, the more I'm probably writing to try to understand what's what's happening and think it through. Um, And so I was journaling in the aftermath of the attack. I was journaling very uh, stream of consciousness style about what was happening, about um, the guilt I felt, about the fact that I didn't want to live, which felt so ironic because all I had wanted to do was survive this event. And now I'm back and I'm safe and I don't want to live my life Um, about the nightmares, about the insomnia, about the rage, um, just because everything in my life centered on this question of what the hell is happening to me. And so I was journaling about that. And then truly separate document on my computer, I was writing 
everything that I could remember about the event in as much acute detail as I could remember, because I remember being convinced that if I could write up every single detail, it would stop inserting itself into my conscious thought process all the time. The, the flashbacks, the nightmares would stop if I could just get it all sort of out of my head and onto paper. Yeah. Um, and then at some point, I realized, because I also was having these experiences in my daily life where no one knew how to talk to me anymore. No one knew how to relate to me anymore, right? I had been Google employee, you know, Stanford graduate. These were things that all of my friends understood and and could talk about with me. And then I was terrorist attack survivor. And suddenly, you know, it it was very difficult. People didn't know, do I talk about it? Do I not talk about it? How do I relate to you? What are you thinking? Why are you screaming at me? Which is a fair question. Um, They didn't know about PTSD. They didn't know how to relate to that. And so I was struggling to fit into my life, but I was also struggling with the question of why am I struggling? Why am I weak? That was really how I was conceptualizing it at the time. And slowly as my therapist taught me, this is normal, this is expected, um, everything you're going through is, is sort of textbook. I realized like this is a conversation I don't feel like people are having. I didn't know this was textbook. I didn't know what was happening to me. My friends certainly didn't know what was happening to me. Why don't we have this conversation? Why don't we know that in the aftermath of of horrific events, this is what our minds look like sometimes, or this is what to look for in friends and loved ones or in ourselves. Um, and so I started to be- become convinced that by by combining those two documents and and releasing them, um, you know, publishing them, i I could highlight that story. I could say to someone else who was experiencing exactly what I was experiencing, this is normal. This is textbook. You're going to be okay. You can survive this, um, which was just a message that I didn't, I didn't have before. So um, that was really why I decided to to publish it. I had no idea that, that so many people would c- connect with it. Um, and that's been a really bittersweet thing, you know, sad to think. I, I Every time someone says, this is exactly my experience, I say like, I'm so sorry because it was horrible. But at the same time, um, I'm glad that you don't feel alone in that, right? Now your camera froze up a little bit there, but we can still hear you. You can still hear you perfectly, uh, uh, Maylee, but I'm gonna, yeah, the other question I had on the- Flip it back on. My back? uh, Not yet. I can- Oh, strange. Yeah. But let me all- Okay. Um, The other question I had was the title for the book. Terrorist yeah. attack girl. It's a strong title. You, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it is a, <laughs> you know, it is. A, and I'm just wondering, how did you come up with the name? Like, like the, how did you come up yeah. with the title for the book? Yeah, I actually, so people don't know this, but I went back and forth a lot. Um, I almost called the book prolonged exposure, which I thought was a more, uh, it was the a title that I thought, yeah, easier to stomach for people. Yeah. Right. Um, a little easier to wrap your head around. Um, but also, if you know me, I'm a pretty transparent, pretty blunt, you know, communicator. So um, it's very much my style to just tell you what you're getting. But much more than that, um, it was the title that I initially conceptualized for the project when I started putting these passages together, because um, as I just said to you, right, I had gotten back and I was now the girl who was in the terrorist attack. I was a terrorist attack survivor. That was an identity that I didn't choose that had been sort of thrust on me that I didn't know how to wear, that I didn't want. I, I spent so much time just being like, just just go back to who I was. I don't want to be this. I'm, I'm not a terrorist attack survivor. Leave that. Let's not touch it. Um, and finally, I was talking to a, a colleague from Google, 
And she told me about another woman who had survived a sexual assault and sort of had made it her mission to help other people. And that was when I realized, like, I don't get to choose this identity, but I get to choose what it means to me. Right. And I'm going to yep. stop letting other people define it. And I'm going to define it. I'm going to be terrorist attack girl. And as I said before, I'm going to use that to try to make meaning and purpose out of this horrific um, experience and, and horrific identity that I wear now. So in the same way that I wear it, you know, as as I wouldn't say proudly, but I I recognize that it's not a choice. That's an identity that I wear. And the way that I deal with it is is by talking about it is by 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 being very direct about what happened to me. Now, here's for those that can see it. There's a there's a copy of the book. The other question I had, Bailey, is the choice of the black and white title oh, or the yeah. black and white cover. It's, yeah. it's again, it's kind of an interesting, you know, theme theme in terms of going going black and white. And obviously the picture. I'm just wondering, what was the thought process behind that? Is there like is there anything symbolic behind, you know, the, 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 the black and white, the, 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 the black and white cover? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that that really is a picture of, of me, not from the experience, but as a recreation where I really am wearing everything that I was wearing in the experience. I really am crushed into a little cubby in a bathroom. It's, it's very, very similar to what the day felt like. So um, when I actually went and took that photo, that felt very, um, I felt a lot of like victory in that. I, I hadn't been able to put those clothes back on before. I hadn't been able to relive a lot of that before. And so to go and do all of that and take this photo and and make it the symbol of, of this story that I cared so much about sharing um, was big. But when I saw this design, um, when this sort of cover option was sent to me, it was immediate. I was like, that's it, because that's the feeling. It was yeah. like my life had lost all of its color, like all of the color in those 17 hours had been drained from everything that I knew, everything that I loved, everything that I was. Um, and so it was like I felt like I was living my life in black and white. The other question I had was the way that the book is structured is unique in the way that you're going back and forth. You sort of do a paragraph um, talking about the attack itself and then a paragraph of your life after the attack and, and and you keep on rotating back and forth which is again is a very cool way to contrast um you know kind of during and after and i'm just wondering was you know obviously it's a very intentional way to write but i'm just wondering what was the thought process behind that like because the other way you could have done it presumably is talked about the attack at the beginning for the first you know call it 75 pages and then for the other 75 pages you could have talked about life after the attack but the way you the way you went at it was different is that you kept flipping back and forth, which, again, um, is, again, a very I, I, again, I, I thought it was excellent just in terms of constantly going back and forth. And 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 again, just kind of showing how life can turn on a on a, on a dime. And I'm just wondering that whole that whole way to write like did the the people because that's normally not how a book is written. You know what I mean? Like, it's just that's a unique way to go at it. I'm just wondering your thought process behind that. Yeah. Yeah. There were really two reasons for that. Um the first was that I was trying to show the connection. I was trying to show that it is exactly this moment. You know, when when this bomb goes off and and people begin to die in the courtyard and I hear it and it shakes my bed, that is directly the causation of this nightmare that I am having, you know, however many weeks or months later that I, why I wake up screaming and, and covered in sweat. Um, so one was that I was trying to show the link, but the other was that um, time felt like that to me when I was writing. It, it was so muddled. I lived 
today here right now and i still lived very much in that memory you know i was afraid all the time of you know they were coming to get me so it was like that time had lost its linearity in, in a way for me i don't know if that's the word but we're gonna go with it um in a way time was no longer linear for me it was it was not even cyclical it was completely busted and broken in the way that i think vonnegut was trying to conceptualize in slaughterhouse five as well right um, in the aftermath of trauma, time doesn't feel very linear because you're constantly being pulled back and forth between the timelines. And yeah. so I, I was trying to show what my brain felt like. It's interesting. And the last question on this is, is yeah. can we, can we look forward to the movie version mainly? Is, is that on the, uh, <laughs> is, is, is that on tap somewhere? Cause I think it, it would be a really that's cool so movie. Kind. That's for sure. I totally agree. I think it would be a beautiful movie. Um, I, I'll give you two answers. I'll give you my my public answer and my friends and family answer. Um, the the public answer, and I, I truly feel this. You talked about Christian Craighead. Um, there are whispers that he'll, he'll have a book, that it'll come out once it's been approved. Um, and I think that Christian Craighead lives at the center of this experience. I think that I make... Um, in some ways the other side of the coin right but but i don't live my book doesn't exist without christian craighead so i always say if there's a movie i hope i can be you know in it but i i truly believe this story centers around christian craighead um so fingers crossed i'd love to see the movie as well um why do people do reach out about it from time to time but i think until his story can be public the movie just can't exist for me because it's part of the story um the, re the reality is though mainly i'll tell you is that <laughs> It, that's tr that you know that 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 might be true, but what, I'll tell you when we when when you read your book, it is easier to relate to you because I think when I read that book, I thought to myself, sure. I can't put myself in Christian Craighead's shoes at all. I can't. Like, I'm just not. I'm just not Super that person. Human. But when but when you were going through and describing it, I just kept thinking to myself, what would I do in that situation? And I don't know what I would do. You know, what I mean, like yeah. I literally, I I I don't know what um, yeah. you know what, what would I've even known enough to call. Google and called like I I probably wouldn't you, you know the fact that you you mentioned you, you know you, you downloaded that number to your phone and it was there like I wouldn't even know who to call you know what I mean like again I don't know what I would do and that's why reading the book is it's it's and if you do a movie it's actually frankly easier for the the, the layperson like myself yeah. to relate to you as opposed to Christian because I you know again I'm certainly not that person. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I would have been going the other way. As, as sad as sure, that is, yeah. it's it's exactly. um, he is a he is he is a special person. There's no doubt he about is. that. So, yeah. but um, I, think, I think the friends and family yeah. answer is that I've always hoped in the back of my head somewhere that there will be a show that I can kind of consult on that is yep. about is about trauma in in reality, right? It's not this overplayed single scene of a veteran almost choking his death to wife almost choking his wife to death during a nightmare in the middle of the night right it's like that's the only way we've ever conceptualized of ptsd in the media um and so i hope that one day there will be a show i think single drunk female has done this really well for alcoholism i hope there's a show that does that for trauma just shows the truth of it that we're real people that it affects everyone right we've all been some through something really tough we all process it differently um and just tells the truth of that narrative and of, of that healing um, that I could just, you know, like be in the background of, you know, consult on. Well, look, you're, you're right, because when we when we were first exchanging emails, it was around the Christmas holidays. And that's when I had first read your book. And I, I was I was joking with you over an email. You know, you, you, you know, Die Hard, that movie, I'm sure a lot of people on the line have, have seen it. It was, it, you know, it's a, a Christmas movie, Christmas which I think movie. is yeah, it, exactly. it's, it's open to some debate. But I think. <laughs> I, I read your book, I watched the movie, and I think 
you you have a totally different perspective on the on the experience that those that those captives again it's a movie but this stuff happens um in real life and you have a totally different perspective on their impact not only during that time but what happens when it's all over and they go home because no movie deals with that you know what i mean like no movie deals with they just deal with the rescue and everything's all good and and or it stops like maybe. like it stops on the plane flight you know what i mean exactly. like it, it's exactly. uh, that's where the, that's where the credits roll is that when you're when you're on the plane and you're going home it's all good but the reality is to some degree it's just starting at that point right exactly or it jumps right that's the other story we love to tell is like uh you know me, uh how do you say this in english the miracle in the andes the rugby team that crashed in the andes yeah. mountains, right we love to tell like the horrifying every detail of the situation and then like now they're motivational speakers and race car drivers um so we skip that that ugly part in the middle so often and that's like yep. that's what i was trying to tell with my book that's what i'd love for for people to portray in the media as well um just more honestly because again Absolutely. then when you're going through it you're like oh Oh, that's me. Instead of looking at the race car driver and being like, how the hell? Right. Like mm -hmm. today I can't conceptualize getting there. So. So a couple other points that we, that I was hoping you'd touch on is, is just some safety recommendations. You know, after you've been through all of this again, at, at CSI, there's a ton of travel. We operate yeah. in, you know, countries all over the world, um, you know, some being safer than others. And I just wondering your experience, you know, on, on, on advice to the group on what you need to think about. Obviously, number one is get the damn number. You know what I mean? Because yes, I'll bet you 90% of the people sure. on the line, uh, maybe, maybe they're, they're, they're ahead of the curve to me, but I'll tell you, I don't have the number. I have nowhere to get it. Sure. Um, but, but maybe just some advice from your perspective on what people need to think about when they're going to some of these places. Yeah. I mean, of course, first and foremost, reminder that this is not a common experience. The stats on this, it's very, very unlikely to happen to you. Um, but I do have, you know, I, I present now at, at corporate security conferences, you know, the, the groups that provide security to, um, to corporations like CSI and like Google. Um, and, you know, first I like to tell people, listen to those people. It's incredible to talk to corporate security professionals. So often they're like, it's so hard just to get people to engage with what we're saying, to save the number, right? Like that is a gargantuan yeah. ask in and of itself. Absolutely. Um, so listen to those people. Yeah. And, and, um, balance their knowledge with your own, right? Go do some research. Don't, uh, don't assume that you have all the information you need yet. Do a bit of research, understand what the risks are, right? What I know now is that in Nairobi, Al-Shabaab targets high-end, uh, areas that are full of Westerners, right? Because they make yep. valuable targets. They make headlines when you kill them. Um, so really in the same way that a five-star hotel is the safest place you can stay in some areas, it's a really unsafe place in some areas. So, um, listen to your corporate security professionals, do your own research. And the third one is, um, think about, think about the travel. Do you need to go? You know, I could have done that all virtually today. I would have probably chosen the virtual route, um, and just done those interviews digitally from, from my home. Um, so do you need to go? If you do need to go listen to your corporate security team, ask them what you should need to know, follow their recommendations to a T and make sure you cross reference your own research. The other, the other thing you had mentioned in the book is that once you got back home, um, and you know, once, w once you had sort of been through treatment and started to get better, mm -hmm. you looked at your life before the attack and said, you know what, my stress level and everything was, was quite high at that point. Um, and I'm just wondering advice to people as well on, you know, how to deal with just the regular, the, you know, the regular stress of, of their job and everything. Because I think one of the reflections you had was life wasn't perfect, you know, it, you, you know, beforehand either. You know what I mean? Like it was a high stress job. 
you know, go, 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 the pressure to move up the ladder and, you know, hit the performance ratings and all that sort of stuff, it takes its toll on the body, right? Yeah, it does. Um, I think what I really realized in the aftermath was that, and and I, I work with corporations on this today, is that stress is a spectrum, right? And so people think of PTSD as like maybe unrelatable if they've never, hard to relate to if they've never experienced it, but it's just the extreme of the very same spectrum that I guarantee you that you're on. So what I was learning in therapy um, had a lot to do with managing the psychosomatic effects of extreme stress, traumatic stress, right? Um, but but everyone that I've ever known has worked at, at um, high achieving corporations like CSI, like Google, like, um, you know, Meta uh, is experiencing some version of that, right? It might be a higher heart rate. It may be difficulty sleeping. I certainly had always had difficulty sleeping. Um, It might be nightmares about their work. It might be um, just bad uh, overall physical or mental health, right? It may be anxiety. It may be depression. Um, These are things that manifest from, again, and this is always my question, are we looking at a symptom or are we looking at a cause, right? And if you're looking at a symptom, look at your underlying stress level. And so you can use a lot of those exact same psychosomatic techniques um, to to help you. And so if I had to recommend, I would say one, but if I had to recommend two, if I had to recommend two things to truly do that I could show you a million pages of research that support their reduction of stress, it's meditate and work out meditate and work out. And I really? used those wow. heavily, heavily, heavily uh, in the aftermath of the event. I still use them all the time. Um, and it is because working out is actually a fantastic way to manage the fight, flight, or freeze response because your body thinks that you are doing it, right? It feels like you're fighting in a way. Um, you're exhausting the adrenaline. You're exhausting the the psychosomatic response until your body says, okay, we're, uh, we're putting that away. We're good. And it actually gives you a way to start managing that psychosomatic response. When it comes up, your body recognizes it and says, oh, we're actually really good at managing this. We're going to be okay. And can reduce, um, the, the physical impact of that stress. So, so working out is huge. And I know it's so hard to make time for it when you have a, an awesome, you know, corporate impressive job. Um, but it's all about the math, right? Do you want to last two years in that job or do you want to last 10 years in that job? Because otherwise you will burn out. Because by the way, burnout, that's the that's the midpoint of that stress spectrum. Um, and meditation is incredible. Um, meditation teaches you how to quiet the, um, the fallout that's in your mind all the time, that stress. And if you can physically quiet it from working out and you can mentally quiet it from meditation, um, then you can actually return your body to um, a non-sympathetic nervous system state uh, consciously whenever you choose. So your boss comes in and says, what the hell? This was supposed to be done yesterday. You're going to feel that spike come up and you can actually consciously then manage that. And by the way, by turning that response off, you're a far better employee because you leave yourself more access to your rational capabilities and you're going to be a better worker. So Interesting. It's, uh, it's really important. Then the other question I had was, after going through all of this, you know, when you sit back and think, you know, the top three priorities in your life, you know, before and after. Um, and I just wondering how have those changed now after you've been through the whole experience, when you sit down and say, what's important in my life, you know, what are those top three things and are they different than what they were before, um, this experience? I love that question. Um, yes, they are different. Some of them are the same. So my family and my work definitely would have been in my top three before, and they're still in my top three today. Um, But there's a new one in my top three that just didn't exist before, which is me. (laughs) I know that's crazy to say, Um, but, but putting my mental health as one of my top three priorities, and in fact, really should be the top priority all the time because I can't 
be very good at my work or very good in my relationships if I'm not managing my own, you know, mental health and, and sustainability. Um, so I would say that adding myself as a priority is very new in the aftermath and still uncomfortable and I'm still working on it. Um, but that has changed dramatically and trying to manage, trying to always make time to work out, trying to always make time to meditate, um, trying not to let my schedule get away from me, which is, you know, I, that comes and goes, trying not to travel too much in a month, trying not to do too many talks. Um, because again, I have to always ask myself the question, do I want to be able to, to help people, you know, for a year, or do I want to be able to do this for the next 10? And, and if you want to do it for 10, mental health has to be in your top three. Interesting. And you talked a little bit about um, how you're spending your time now. Obviously, you don't work at Google anymore, um, but maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, you've, you've got a website, you're helping tons of different companies out there, um, you know, the, you know, dealing with exhaustion and burnout and trauma, and, and you're clearly an expert now in, in, in how to deal with, with PTSD, but maybe just talk, and, and, and again, you've, you, you've built, a, you know, you've built your app. Um, uh, you know, how do you spend your time now in terms of like, um, you know, what 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 you do, um, and yeah. and and helping companies and and speaking and things along those lines. Yeah, speaking of my schedule getting away from me, but I feel really lucky to do everything that I do. So um, the book the book has been out for just about a year. So a portion of what I do is traveling to talk about the book. Um, those are usually talks that center around trauma specifically and and mental health fallout. After that. Um, so, you know, talking for the National Alliance of, of Mental Illness, things like that. Um, then the next portion of what I do with my time is for the app. So we just uh, formed an amazing partnership with a very uh, elite university in the U.S. who is releasing the app to all of its students for free. Um, wow. So working with wow. them and doing training on not only for their staff, but for their students. You know, a lot of what we've talked about, what is what does trauma look like? Because trauma is this incredible word that we reserve for other people, right? We love to say that. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. That sounds so traumatic. And then someone will ask you, well, have you ever been through any trauma? And we have this tendency to be like, oh no, I'm trauma. Goodness yeah. me. No, that's not me. That's other people. So I do a lot of work trying to educate people on on what trauma means and how it affects us. And and again, this this understanding that this is a, a neural progression that you don't control. There's no shame in that, right? Whether you develop um, you know, negative fallout from a traumatic experience is is outside of your control. Only healing is inside of your control. So let's talk about how to do that. So that's the second portion of what I do. And then I would say the third and fourth portion is with big corporations. So yeah, they call me a stress expert, which is hilarious because how much stress do you have to undergo in your life to be an expert in it? Um, but what I've done is I've basically created a curriculum. So I, I work with uh, corporations on the smaller team level to improve their communication between each other and reduce stress and burnout, right? Um, I've, I've created this curriculum where I've adapted these research-based solutions that they use for PTSD to be more accessible in an everyday way to help you control the somatic, you know, uh, fallout from high stress professions because we want you to not burn out, right? That's really, it's not good for anyone when someone burns Absolutely. out. Um, and, and there are so many ways to preempt that, right? I think when you, when you hear people speaking in this space, they tend to say, what do I do when my team is burnt out? Well, that question has come way too late, right? Yep. We want to know how to preempt their burnout in the first place. So I train uh, individual teams on that. And then at a slightly higher corporation level, maybe this is element four of what I do, um, I've created a trauma training curriculum. So, hey, when you're onboarding new employees, I work with the HR department usually, when you're onboarding new employees, you can explain to them, what does trauma look like? How do we start to recognize it in ourselves or in our colleagues, right? And what can we do? What are just the first three steps? Because the first two questions people always have is what's happening to me and what can I do? Um, and you can apply that to a loved one too. What's happening to my loved one and what can I do? So 
training HR departments uh, with a quick curriculum of how they can teach that to their employees and what they can, what resources they can provide for their employees. Because I think when this happened to me at Google, there was no process, right? What do you, okay, your employee was in a terrorist attack. What's the process, right? There isn't one a lot of times. And mine happened to be this very visible trauma, but so often that we don't even know the trauma has happened, but we can still provide resources because again, otherwise the most likely thing that's gonna happen is that person's gonna be unable to do their work and they're gonna leave the company. And that's not not good for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's, uh, that's amazing. Well. You know, for when I had let off this call, I'd said, look, we set a very high bar for quality in terms of the, the oh, folks geez. that uh, come on. And Melee, you've like blown it away. Again, for oh, every, I thought you were going to say know, you I, missed I it. You, you didn't even come no, close. <laughs> like, no, no, there, there's no, there, there, you never come close to the bar because you're so far above it. Um, oh, but again, a lot of the people on the line have probably never heard of uh, Melee until today. And I think you can clearly see this last 90 minutes. You can clearly see why I tried to track her down. And she thankfully agreed to come on. Because, Melee, again, you are an incredible individual. Your story and how you turned this thing and basically turned it, you know, turned it like a, a very negative experience. Again, you are, frankly, an inspiration to anybody who's, you know, is, is suffering and just shows you how, you know, again, with the right focus and the right treatment and everything, you can turn the tables. And that's what you've done. And it is it is amazing. And, yeah, on behalf of CSI, Melee, thank you very much for, for taking the time. For everybody on the line, read her book. Check out her website. You know, we got HR groups here. You know, give her a call. Um, you know, again, uh, extremely impressive, extremely impressive. So, Melee. So, again, thank you very much. And, um, yeah, um, again, there's nothing else to say. Again, really appreciate you taking the time and, and again, sharing some heartfelt um, experiences of, of those, uh, the 17 hours and the time after. So, again, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I really believe um, anyone could be me. Anyone can heal. Anyone can make something negative into a positive. And, that's why I do these talks. So I hope I hope that resonates with somebody. And I thought you did a fantastic job. I'm so thankful that you tracked me down, Scott. I hope we talk again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Maylee. And yeah, I hope our paths cross in the future for sure. Thanks. Me too. See you next time. Bye. Okay, cool.